Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries was the first supporter of the Sportsman's Nation. I've gotten to know some of the people who work for that organization very well. It's an awesome company. They make awesome products and they have thousands of retail locations all over the United States. So if you need help finding a specific battery, whether it's for your truck, whether it's for your trail camera, a remote control, a rangefinder, anything in between, stop into a local Interstate Batteries retail store, talk with a specialist, and they're going to help you out. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet, Chasing Bear. On this podcast, Jonathan Wilkins of Black Duck Revival and myself, have a discussion about the history of African-American hunting in the South. But more importantly, we discuss the issues that have led to low participation of African-Americans in modern hunting. The discussion flows into racism, its roots, the roots of racism in modern hunting. And Jonathan gives some insightful commentary, as is his usual thing he does, on race issues in general. Our discussion is framed around a book called Hunting and Fishing in the New South by Scott Giltner. And it's an incredible book. And we kind of use the book as a, as a scaffolding around the conversation. I, uh, I'm really looking forward to, to you guys hearing my conversation with Jonathan Wilkins. W Hunting Supply is 
a hound supply company based out of Washington, family owned. It's run by hounds men and hounds women. They stand behind their products. They have incredible customer service. When you call their numbers, you talk to real humans that know what a hound is. <laughs> and they use the products that they sell. So check out our friends at W Hunting Supply for all your dog and hound needs. Also, fall bear season is coming up. Man, I can just smell the gold rush now. My whole life smells like gold rush for about a month from late August through the end of September when we're baiting bears several times per week in Arkansas. And check out Northwoods Bear Products. If you're baiting bears, it does not make a lick of sense to not use commercial scents. And Northwoods Bear Products are the best on the market. We've been using them for years. And they have tremendous drawing power for bringing more bears into your bait, which means more opportunity. And check out our buddies and their products at Northwoods Bear Products. And the Western Bear Foundation. These guys are fighting the good fight out west, standing up for the rights of bears. Yep, sportsmen, hunters, we actually are the good guys that love wildlife and want to see wildlife thrive. The Western Bear Foundation also stands up for the rights of hunters and for the North American Mile of Wildlife Conservation that has caused the most beautiful and abundant and wonderful act of animal husbandry in modern times to happen on this continent. Western Bear Foundation, they're speaking up for the sportsmen. That's what I'm trying to say. These are our partners, and we value what they're doing. You're going to enjoy this podcast with my friend, Jonathan Wilkins, Black Duck Revival. You know, I think as we, as we start a conversation like this, Jonathan, I learned a phrase the other day called the principle of charity. Have you ever heard the principle of charity? I don't think so. So the principle of charity is basically inside of communication, and this would be widespread communication. The most effective communication is when the listener listens to the person that's communicating from a position of their best the best possible scenario of what's said. And I heard this in a book, a really interesting book, a uh, book on tape I was listening to. And he's, this guy was saying that that's the reason why like the media right now is so untrustworthy on every side is because people take something that's said and they, they take it to its worst possible extreme and then they use it against that person, both sides. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of the principle of charity is that when somebody says something, you you take kind of like their best, the the best, you, you give them some charity essentially, you know? Sure. And, and as I, as we talk about race relations, as we talk about stuff that's pretty sensitive, mm -hmm. you know, that's what I'm asking our listeners to give me and you is the principle of charity, really. Like, because I know that I, you could probably take a sound bite out of something, any, I mean, you could go back to something I said some other time and take a sound bite, totally out of context, 
in the worst possible light that that communication, those words could describe and make me out to be some kind of whatever. And, you know, I, me and you are both being kind of vulnerable. And we said that even as we discussed this podcast, but it was something that was important to both of us to talk about. And I think you've got something to say. And I, I have a lot of respect for you. And, uh, and so I, I was thinking about that as I, as I was like, man, should we do a podcast on race and, uh, and race relations? And here's the deal is that I don't know the right way always to say stuff. Even, even in our relatively short conversations we've had coming into this, I've learned some stuff that I didn't know, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that's, that's important. And I'm saying that to the listener is, you know, give us some charity. And, um, you know, the next question that I have is, you know, why would we, I, Jonathan, I've always kind of been of the mind that, you know, inside of media, like we're, I'm a bear hunter. And so stick with bear hunting, you know, kind of stick inside of these, of, of your, your target. And, but the deeper that I've got into media and the more that media has changed for me not to address certain topics almost feels, uh, you know, feels cowardly or feels like I'm dodging something. And I mean, you know, you've heard the podcast that we've done about family mm-hmm. and about uh, values and bringing, you know, raising up children and, and building family culture and stuff. It's like, it's like, that doesn't have anything to do with bear hunting. Tell me how to kill a bear. Well, you know, the, the cool thing about media these days is, is that we have so many platforms for communication. We've got the leverage to talk about what we want to talk about that we feel like is relevant. And the reason it's relevant, and here's the reason it's relevant, it's relevant because we're humans, you know? I mean, it's relevant It's relevant to talk about this because you're my friend, Jonathan, and you have a very different life experience than I've had. And I know that I don't understand it all. And I've had a life experience that you haven't had mm-hmm. that you may not fully understand. And uh, But the cool thing is, is that, you know, I, I, I think, you know, essentially when I like boil down hunting, like a lot of times I view it through the romantic lens of this is a primitive human action, you know. It's something that's like primitively, like essentially human. And getting along, learning how to get along with other humans is essentially human too. <laughs> and uh, now, so my guest is Jonathan Wilkins. Uh, jo- you've been on this podcast two times before, right, Jonathan? Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, but man, you sent me a book. Uh, you sent me a book that I read, and it's called Hunting and Fishing in the New South, uh, Black Labor, White Leisure After the Civil War. Fascinating book. How did you hear about this book? Uh, man, I was just, uh, I think I just did a Google search, you know, trying to find some, uh, just some history of African-American hunting uh, in the United States in the 
I mean, there's a want of research on it. There's probably two books. There's that book, and there's another text um, written by a guy. That, uh, the other text is written by a guy who uh, actually went to college here in central Arkansas and, mm. at Hendrix. Um, but, yeah, man, I just kind of found it like that, ordered it, uh, read it, was super fascinated with it, and uh, I ended up doing a little uh, interview with a – the author Scotty Giltner, and and I've been kind of trying to disseminate it to you know anybody who I thought would take the time to read it and could get something out of it because I thought it was a a pretty thought provoking and eye opening book. So I want to talk about the book some, but like a part part of what you do in in a, like a passion of yours, would you say that that is introducing African Americans? back into hunting is that how would you how it describe to me like kind of your just kind of your core inside of that mm, so i mean part of it would be you know like in the in the brand name black duck revival like we've talked about before that's a that's a reference to this old church that i bought and you know reconditioned uh but it's it's also an idea that's important to me, this, this kind of resurgence or this bringing back or this revival of this idea of self-sustainability and being able to take care of yourself. And I think that's particularly important, uh, you know, to people in, you know, what might be referred to as marginalized communities, uh, especially communities that, you know, like African-Americans were once almost entirely uh, a rural population you know, uh, working in agricultural labor, you know, even after, I'm saying working, not being forced to, but like working in agriculture, even after the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, and that's no longer the case. You know, yeah. no, most black people in America live in urban environments. Uh, you know, there's a large disconnect, I feel like, in a lot of ways with uh, the natural world, with agriculture. I mean, there's a, we could talk for two two days about why those reasons are, but, uh, you know, I think often we don't think about it, but you know, the, the people who, when you hear people talk, say, you know, black people built this country, like the white house was built with slave labor, mm -hmm. the great artisans of the 1800s, many of them were enslaved people, mm -hmm. the great chefs, of the 1800s, you know, French classically trained chefs were often enslaved people. Mm. Um, the people who worked in, you know, the turpentine forest of the South, the people who cleared the swamps oftentimes were enslaved people. And then the people who tilled and worked that land were enslaved. And then afterwards, you know, a, a continuation of that bondage, you know, while maybe not officially owned, right. you know, uh, stunted in their ability to to limit uh to reach their full human potential. So this idea of working with your hands and and working the earth and agricultural and hunting and fishing these are things that you know today I think it's often a misnomer that we don't associate that with African Americans right. uh but it's something that we have a I mean this country was built on the labor and the the ability for of black people to do and to make and to connect with the world around them. Uh, and, you know, and that, that works uh, 
into all all manner of ideas about things, you know? Like, oftentimes, I think that, you know, Asian Americans aren't thought of as, I guess, having, like, some sort of physical prowess, you know? But, I mean, think about, like, who was building the railroads across this country? You know, think about uh, the great feats of architecture from thousands of years ago, you know? And it's, I think a lot of these ideas are more based around who's telling the narrative and how that narrative serves some people and some people's interest and doesn't to uh doesn't serve uh, adequately or yeah. uh, appropriately some other people well what i man you know there's what you just said about african americans being so connected rurally for such a long time has almost been like erased from the culture in a lot of in a lot of ways. I heard a stat today that there's three hundred thousand African Americans that hunt in the U.S. today. Three hundred thousand of like eleven million hunters. So less than less than one in ten. Does that stat ring with you? I mean, I, I heard be- that from a twenty seventeen. I'd believe that if you took that nationally. Now, I'd I'd say the. I would almost ha- I would hazard to guess that the bulk of black hunters are in the South. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I bet if you, you know, if you look at the the centers of African American life in this country, uh, they're gonna be mostly in coastal or northern cities. You know that and. These po- these are population remnants of the Great Migration. Right. You know, people leaving uh, structural racism and and you know physical violence in the South. Uh, which and they moved to the and they to moved the cities. To, to the industrial cities yeah. of the North because you know you you also had a you had an economic shift out of agriculture into production and those production centers were in the north so you had these waves of people moving to you know uh st louis like my my dad's family was originally from keogh arkansas really that's about 30 miles away from here but you know i'm from st louis uh indian indianapolis detroit uh minneapolis baltimore Mm -hmm. You know, these are pl- these were big industrial Boston, b- big industrial cities that black people moved up to. Uh, yeah, and th- and it shows you kind of how short our collective memory is. Yes, because you know, just colloquially, you start to think that you know that I don't know that maybe there's something inherent in blackness that uh, that is disassociative with the natural world. Right. And if you just look back a little bit further or you just you drive around like the state that we live in. Like you know, you live in a part of the state where there's not very many African Americans. If right. you drove over to the opposite side of the state, That's right. you would see black people everywhere. You would see uh, whole towns. I mean, now small you'd see small towns, but like Cotton Plant, which is about 10 miles from Brinkley, like yeah, is probably almost entirely African American. And that's all remnant of yeah. That's agricultural slavery. populations where people lived, um, and you know, and it's like you, probably most people wouldn't think of black farmers, but across the delta, 
across the South. There are yeah. black farmers. There are you know, multi-generational black yeah. farmers. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know, man. Well, that's, the, the, that's a good place to put a button The in rich, it. what I was shocked at, Jonathan, inside of this book, in the first chapter, it's like, I mean, just is if if somebody could just even just read the first chapter of this book, the rich history of hunting that was built upon kind of this plantation model. If I, I don't know another way to say yeah, it, for sure. But like uh, the black people were in charge of. There was a lot of hound hunting, a lot mm-hmm. of dog hunting. They were running deer. They were running rabbits. They were well and. It, it, so the, the a lot of the black guys were the hound handlers, and a lot yeah. of them were master houndsmen. Fast, I mean that blows my mind. I mean that, that continues today. Like if you go, uh, you know, we're in the western, or about as far west as you can go, and still be in the south. But if you go like towards more of the deep south, yeah, where you have these like, like very strong and and they're still there like quail hunting yeah. heritages and like especially on those plantations with those like big huge row trees yeah uh many 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 of the great dog handlers and pointer trainers have been black uh and i mean that still continues today uh yeah. i saw man i saw something that was really cool it was a uh it was some like field trials, like bird dog trials for pointers. I want to say in Georgia. And it was started in the mid 80s. And it was basically started because, uh, you know, some good old boys wouldn't let some black uh, houndsmen enter into their field trials. And so they're like, well, mm-hmm. we'll start our own. And man, it was like 150 black guys all on horseback, mm-hmm. you know, with these pointers and these spaniels, uh, like riding through these big old plantations you know, having their dogs uh, find coveys. Yeah. And, uh, man, it was it was really cool to see, and it was a really powerful thing to see. Um, and, yeah, man, it, 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 I think it goes to who's telling the story, who's yeah. writing the books, who's getting the publicity. It's not, oftentimes not the people that are, that are integral to it, you know? Yeah. Well, the other thing, and, and I want to – I am – I am relaying information here that really I I just have learned. Mm -hmm. And this book is fresh on my mind because I read it last week. It's been a while since you've read it, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been maybe a little while. Probably a year, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But so so here is what this guy like really laid out is that there were the the black guides. There were a lot of black guides. Like, Mm -hmm. and so part of this, this hunting culture was that these, you know, the wealthy guys would go out and hunt and they would have black guys that would guide them. So, but there was what they called black game where there were certain species that they would allow the black people to hunt on their own. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in part of it, part one of them was raccoons and possums. mm -hmm. And so these guys would have, Coon dogs. And now we're, t- we're, t- we're talking specifically during slavery. Well, or even after you're talking about. Well, it started in yes. I'm talking inside of slavery, and yeah. then but then it kind of continued for a while after that. No, just for because sure. of who who was kind of 
Well, I want to. The, the reason base. I wanted to clarify that because I want to make the distinction. It's uh, it's not, it wasn't so much that you know this uh, like magnanimous masters were allowing uh, these folks to go out and hunt. I mean, like oftentimes it was a way like they didn't want to eat raccoons and possums, right. and they would allow slaves to go out and tree them and catch them and supplement the yeah. pot. So. Th- just as a financial decision, so yes. they didn't have to pay as much to feed their slaves. Mm. Uh, and what's interesting about that is that that's really, when you really look at that, that you want to talk about dehumanizing. You know, like, I want to save every dollar I can, and so I'm going to send you out at night to go get what I consider essentially vermin to feed your wives and children. So it doesn't cost me as much because this is all about a bottom line. Mm. But it also shows, you know, if you want to talk about resiliency and being able to affirm your humanity in the face of barbarity, you know, this was a, this was a small little place where, or an aspect of life where these people who were in bondage, who were enslaved, who were not recognized as human beings uh, could find some mastery and some small control over their own lives yeah. and take pride in what they were doing and their mm. expertise and their prowess. Um, and, you know, like we, I think maybe the first podcast we did, we talked about how validating it was uh, for me, like when my wife, uh, you know, was proud of me that I had brought a deer home. Yeah. You know, and to, and when, when you're bringing home sustenance, you know, inside of a system where you can't protect your wife, you can't protect your children, uh, it's, it, it, that's kind of what we were talking about earlier, man. Like it makes hunting a raccoon incredibly noble. Yeah. Well, listen to this. There, here's a quote that I want to read from this book. Mm-hmm. I think I sent you this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I've sent this quote to several people and people have just been like, wow, it's powerful. So, here, here it goes. J. Vance Lewis, born a slave in Louisiana, noted this dual importance. He said, the slave loves his dog, he wrote. They're constant companions. He talks with him by day and hunts with him by night. His dog is the only thing under the sun that he can call his own. For the master claims the woman that is called his wife, his offspring, his hut, his pig, his own body, his very soul. It's heady stuff, man. You, you see, you see how something that seems insignificant, like a coon hunt or a coon dog becomes like this one place that culture is built around. And that, you know, where these people were able to, uh, they were connected to the land. It's man, it's something I actually identify with. You know, I've I have thought often, you know, there's many reasons why I was drawn to hunting and, you know, this this lifestyle. But man, you know, I think one of the reasons is because and you know, this is kind of this is uncomfortable I think for a lot of people to hear. But, you know, uh when you are a a you know, a black person, a black man, uh, or perceived as such, you know, however it might work out. There is a, there is a constant awareness of how you're being perceived that you have to 
you have to maintain. Uh, you know, in business dealings, in the store, just out in the world. And it really is, it's exhausting in a way that's, I think is difficult for someone who doesn't experience it to understand. And there is a, you know, the natural world in the wild, and especially oftentimes, you know, the way that I like to hunt, like by myself, deep in stuff, really immersing myself in it. It's an opportunity to not have that. It's an opportunity to, it's, it, you know, it's a way for me to enter a, a meritocracy of my own choosing. Mm. And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's revitalizing and restorative and validating in ways that I think I'm often, you know, I'm not fully perceiving at the time. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do kind of connect with that idea. Uh, you know, I mean, we're talking yeah. about generations removed, but, and I have, you know, I can't really comprehend the barbarity that someone who lived in Arkansas 200 years ago that looked like me might have experienced. But yeah. I can, I understand what it's like to have to be aware that yeah. of, of how I'm perceived all the time. And it, uh, it's, it's an odd thing to think about that there is such humanity in what is often, you know, the snuffing out of sentient life. And it's, mm. it's such a strange duality to it. But I, I do think, and I think it's one of the reasons why it's important to have this conversation in this space, in this world of hunting, because, and, you know, we talked about it before, and I've even put something on Instagram about it. Like, I'm never not aware of that. You know, yeah. uh, there's never a place, even when I'm able to kind of breathe, I'm, when I'm coming out of the woods, you know, I'm aware of it. Uh, when I'm driving to the woods, when I'm leaving, you know, uh, blood on my tailgate, you know, like mm. being armed, all these things, who I might encounter. Like I'm aware of, I'm aware of this constantly. And so it it inundates and it percolates through every aspect of my life. Yeah. You know? And, and so that's why, that's why I think it's appropriate to talk about it with, you know, with the understanding that, you know, these oftentimes these are taxing conversations. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we've also talked about that. That's where growth comes from. Growth comes from struggle. Growth comes from yeah. discomfort and that's personal growth and that's societal growth. And that's, you know, something that you love growing to become more inclusive and more representative and more honest with itself. Yeah. Uh, and, and so like, I, I, like I said, I do want to acknowledge that, you know, you know, for some of your listen, listenership, man, you know, this might be difficult or even kind of off-putting. Uh, but I, I really do think if you look at hunting as kind of a conduit through which we can more fully explore our humanity. Yeah. That it, maybe it takes a little bit of the bitterness out of it. Yeah. And it, uh, it makes it a little bit easier to, to hear somebody who's coming from a different perspective. Yeah. You know, I think that the, the essential foundational point at which humans need to interact with each other well, in any kind of relationship, empathy, 
empathy. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, talking about talking about slavery. Slavery ended in 1865. It was when the emancipation was. That here here's a here's a point that people make is that you know heck that was a hundred and sixty years ago. Here's my point is that that wasn't very long ago. My think about this. My grandfather was born I think in 1918. Mm-hmm. He's passed away now. He lived to to be 94. He was a very influential man in my life. I mean like very influential. Like we did all kinds of stuff together, you know, influential man. He would have been alive when former slaves were alive. Sure. He would have. I, I did the math on the way down here. Cause I've, I've thought about that analogy before, but I actually did. It. I mean, uh, a young, a young child that was 10, 12, 15 years old in 1865, you know, in 1918, I mean, would have been, they would have been older, but I mean, like he would have been on the earth at the same time that there were humans alive that were enslaved. And you think about how, because see, I mean, people say, ah, well, it's not my problem. We didn't do that. It wasn't me, you know? And I mean, there's holes all inside of that. There's also, that's a tough one though, because, you know, and I'm going back to this idea of empathy, Jonathan. Is that, you know, no, that white guy that lives across the street over there, he did not own a slave. He's not the one that did it. But we very much so live in the wake of that oppression. Yeah, that's a good man, the that, wake of it. That's a good. We live in, in, in we live in the wake. And I, and I think that's a notable thing to just acknowledge. And some people have a hard time acknowledging that. But, uh, and I think if your first posture is defensiveness, you know, and I'm talking, I'm talking to myself. If my first posture is defensiveness, when I hear somebody talk about, you know, something that happened a long time ago that quote unquote, I didn't have anything to do with, which is true. I didn't choose to be a white guy. Mm-hmm. I was put in this body just like you were put in yours. Yeah. So it's like, but at the same time, I've got to be empathetic. I mean, that's part of being human. That's what separates us from beasts. A wolf is not empathetic to anyone. A human, the reason this place works and has worked as long as it has and is breaking down now is because people don't have empathy. It costs me nothing to be able to tip my hat and say, man, I get it, Jonathan. I, I And I know that I don't get it, but it's it's... That doesn't hurt me to say, man, we live in the wake of those systems. And I mean, we could talk about systemic racism and stuff that would blow most people's minds. And a lot of people are aware of it. You know, I mean, like schools and incarceration rates and arrests and convictions and all this stuff, you know. I mean, like we could talk about all that. But like we live inside the wake of it. And I think part of the reason I wanted to have this conversation was just to just I think some people for some reason have feel like they're they have a they have a hard time acknowledging that I I, I don't have any problem acknowledging that. Well man and, I'll I'm sorry to interrupt you man but I'll I'll tell you something because so you bring up you've brought up Gary Newcomb many times. How old is Gary Newcomb? Seventy two. Gary Newcomb seventy two. 
My father's name is Hiram Wilkins, and he's 76. Mm. And uh, my dad, when my dad was born, he was born into legalized segregation. Right. Now my dad know. would have been as well. Yeah, absolutely. I did, I, I... It's, it's, and it's such a crazy thing to think about. I mean, so think about this. When I, when I was born, it was only legal for me to exist, for my parents to be married for about 30 years. Bizarre. You know, so we're talking about the wake of things. Uh, I think people want to go back to slavery. Hey, and just to clarify, your mother is my, a white woman. My mom's white. My dad's black. Um, it, was, it was a crime for my parents to be married and to have children when my father was a young man. It was, when my father was fighting in Vietnam for three years, it was unthinkable that his family would look the way that it does. Yeah. You know, I told you a story about my, the guy who my dad's named after, my great uncle Hiram, who's passed away. He was from Keogh, Arkansas. Uh, one time we were visiting him, me and my family, and uh, my mom, uh, we were saying goodbye to him. My mom gave him a kiss on the cheek, and my wife, my wife's white as well, and she gave him a kiss on the cheek, and uh, my Uncle Hiram looked like he had seen a ghost, and my dad said, what's wrong with you? And, he, my, and my great uncle said, and I'll never forget this, he said, he said, I remember when they would kill you for looking at a white woman. He said, and two of them just kissed me on the cheek. Mm. You were standing there beside him. Yeah, I mean, man, you want to talk about a powerful statement. Mm. Um, and so to think about, like, we're living concurrently in a world with a man who, I mean, it, it really looked like he was afraid something bad was about to happen to him. And... Mm. And so all of that living memory and all of those influences and all of that history and all of that wake, as you describe it, is still around when I'm trying to go kill a black bear, you know, or I'm trying to kill ducks or I'm trying to go fishing or I'm just scouting or whatever I'm doing. All of that is brought into it as well. And that doesn't mean because I'm aware of that, that doesn't mean that I'm an inherently fearful person or I'm an inherently, you know, distrustful person. But it does mean that I think it's disingenuous when people say that didn't have anything to do with me because, you know, I mean, let's go back to where we're at. We're right here close to Little Rock. Think about those pictures of the Little Rock Nine, those pictures of angry people attacking mm -hmm. folks, screaming at children, mm -hmm. hateful vitriolic signs and the things they would say and spitting on little girls and all that stuff. And Little, little Rock Nine would have been in the, in the 60s? No, it would have been in a 1954, I believe. 1954? Brown v. Brown v. Board was 1954. Yeah, so it was, they were the first nine black students to integrate uh, Arkansas public schools. And the people that were saying those things and doing those things and fighting it and the fact they had to bring the National Guard into it and stuff, you know, they didn't stop thinking that because the federal government told them that right. they had to let their kids. What happened is that a bunch of folks moved 
and uh, school systems changed and whatnot. But those ideas, those preconceptions, those ideas about what society was supposed to be and was supposed to look like, they didn't disappear. And those folks so, raised some of those people. people are still... They're still around. They're still alive. I mean, those folks, those folks had, you know, children, you know, and those children maybe have been my boss or my teachers or... And... Uh, and I think it's important, you know, just as wonderful things are passed down in family and just through osmosis with your family, yeah. things that are not wonderful are passed down and absorbed as well. And, you know, these ideas about, uh, you know, what's important to you or your family or your heritage or, you know, and that could be your religion or where you live or, you know, these traumas and stuff continue as well. Yeah. You know, like the, the children of the civil rights workers who were lynched and burned and maimed in the 60s are still around. You know what I mean? They're yeah. bringing those living memories and those traumas to their experiences and to their children. And I feel like for anyone to get past any of this and to move in a direction that I think the vast majority of people would want – you can't ignore things. Yeah. It's the same thing, you know, in a relationship with your, with your wife, you know, that not talking about stuff. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm bad about that. I don't want to talk about stuff. I want to ignore it. I want to just not talk about it and let it go away. And that doesn't work. Yeah. There's got to be an acknowledgement. There's got to be displayed empathy. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to, uh, to villainize yourself. Yeah, but it that's does, a good way to say it. But, it, you know, it, and everyone's reaction whenever you feel that you're attacked or you're made to be uncomfortable or, or something about you is being questioned is to be defensive. I mean, that's everyone's natural inclination. But like you said, the idea of empathy. Uh, I think the idea of empathy is important and also coming to, st coming to things with, with the idea that everyone can be redeemed. There's redemption for everybody. But yeah. you cannot get redemption without acknowledgement. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's like, you've got to look at, look in the mirror and you've got to think about, uh, I think a lot of people think that being a nice person absolves them of wrongdoing. And, you know, oftentimes nice, polite people don't say things. And because they don't say things, other people who aren't so nice or aren't so quiet get to control the conversation, you know? And I mean, you can take that back to when you were in, when you were five years old, you know, right. There was a bully, there was a loud kid. There was, you know, someone who was yeah. pushing themselves and everyone going along with it is what allows that to continue. And the minute that a peer says, Hey man, we're not putting up with that. It, it puts that, it puts that louder voice, that yeah. more destructive force. It puts them on the outside. And, and yeah, man, most people want, want good things for themselves and their family. And maybe, you know, even if you might not culturally relate to somebody, you can relate to those very innate human ideals and feelings. Yes. Uh, and th they're transcendent. You know, mm -hmm. uh, they really are. And, and so I think oftentimes 
as, as human beings, we feel the need to personally identify with somebody else's pain or discomfort to be able to feel empathy. And I think it's a real skill um, to be able to empathize with someone that you don't understand. But you're able to do it because you understand the human condition. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Man, that's good stuff. Golly, I don't even know. I don't even have a response, but I do have a quote. There you go. So I think part of the thing that I see inside of, like, the worldview that I'm not going to say that I represent because I don't represent it, but that is there um, is that a lot of people don't see the issue. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't see that there's an issue. And and part of what I even wanted to do is inside of doing this podcast is just as an, an acknowledgement that there's an issue. Because there's this kind of defensive posture that pops up with people and they're like, nah, this is just being blown out of proportion. And, and you know, there's I, I got a quote here. It says, and I don't even know who said it. I just snagged it from somewhere. But it says the problem is the structures of racism are embedded throughout our economy, our society, and here it is, much of which is invisible to us who are ourselves not disadvantaged, but are glaringly evident to those who are. Mm -hmm. So it's like, without empathy, without looking beyond just yourself, you might look out and see, like, what's the problem? You know, I mean, I've heard, I think one of the biggest things I've heard people say is, this is America. Anybody can go do this. Anybody can go to college. Anybody can, you know, pick themselves up by the bootstraps and work hard and make something for themselves. And so that is their kind of excuse to say "There's racism is non-issue. I mean, I've, I've heard black people say that. That's pretty much what, uh, I don't want to put words in Morgan Freeman's mouth, but that's pretty much what Morgan Freeman says. Uh, and, uh, and, but the stuff is so deeply embedded inside of the culture that I think it's, it's hidden to those who aren't, uh, who aren't disadvantaged by, it. I mean, t- you like hearing you talk, like I see it, it, I just kind of can see through your eyes and, and I don't, I just don't have that same experience. So unless I had some reason to, some connection point, like, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't take the time to think much about it, you know? I mean, people are usually pretty, you, you, people are usually just interested in defending their position in their life, in their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And, sure. And, and here's what I want to say, too, is that I think there's a lot of really good people that aren't, quote, unquote, racist that just don't understand i mean and and that could have been me and i'm still learning and i'm still growing part of the reason i'm having this conversation with you is i i want to i I just think there's something essentially human and fundamental about about having an empathetic perspective towards people and uh, you know i didn't grow up with black people the town I grew up in, you know, it's it's like I look at my life and I could have I could have turned out way different 
uh, in terms of my views. And it would have been hard to blame me if I could say it that way. Because I didn't, I didn't grow up around black people. We had zero diversity in our town for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this world was going on with racism and stuff. And it's like, I, it just wasn't relevant to me. Even though inside of my culture where there were no, at the time, very few minorities at all. Um, there was still very much so racism implanted into the culture for no reason whatsoever. We didn't even know black people. We didn't even know black people not to like. We had no reason to not like somebody. So we didn't know any. Yeah. And still it was embedded. And, uh, you know, I, I my dad, I, I, my dad listens to this podcast sometimes. Man, he embedded in us I got what I said basically from my dad, empathetic, empathy. Like he, he grew up in segregation. He was born in 1948. Mm-hmm. So he would have gone to grade school in all white schools. Yeah. I mean, at least some portion of it. And, uh, you know, the Jim Crow laws were kind of fully gotten out by about 1965, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. But still, a lot of those things would have rippled through. Absolutely, sure. I mean, but actual, you know, a lot of this Jim Crow law. So, I mean, like, he would have grown up in very much so, uh, and he grew up in a bigger town that had mm-hmm. black people. And, uh, man, he, he taught us when we were little, even though we didn't have black friends because there weren't any around, that he was like, no, those people are to be respected. He really did that. And just as easy as I had a dad that put that in me, so it made it pretty easy for me to have that, I could have had a dad that didn't. Well, okay, so check this out. And this is kind of, this relates back to what I was talking about. There's probably a lot of people, you probably know a lot of people who maybe, maybe their dad never particularly said anything, you know, like just, you know, terribly racist or offensive. But he didn't say what Gary Newcomb said to you. Right. You know what I mean? And there so, was a vacuum, there was a space that wasn't filled. And so it was filled with the culture. Yeah. And I'll, man, I was thinking about something. Uh, because even though I think that oftentimes, you know, I think that sometimes we give ourselves an excuse saying that we, you know, we don't know. And I'll tell you, I, I thought of this maybe this little experiment. It's based off of a Chris Rock comedy bit. But Chris Rock said, and I, I think this would be interesting you know, to, to ask people. So if you say that everyone's got the same shot, right? Right. Now, I'm not talking about switching spots with LeBron James or some incredibly wealthy person. But go find me a white guy who's like, I would totally be willing to trade spots with average run-of-the-mill black American. You know, in my profession, whatever I do. That means if if you don't want to do that or you're like, uh, then that means you understand something is amiss. Right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, 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 we are conditioned as human beings to absolve ourselves of responsibility for bad things because bad things make us feel bad. And nobody wants to feel bad, you know? And... 
The problem is, is that's not a recipe to grow as a human being. You know, if you avoid every hunting situation where you experience discomfort, you won't be much of a hunter in my book. Go play golf. Yeah. You know, (laughs) the golf thing. Yeah. But I mean, no, really, uh, if you're only willing, if you're only willing to chase ducks when it's nice weather and it's comfortable, you're probably not going to get to go duck hunting that much. You know, if you want a nice, easy, convenient bear hunt, then spot and stalk in the National Forest in Arkansas at the end of September is not for you. You know, so, but the reason we do these things is because we understand there is value in the journey. There is value in the struggle. There is value in the growth that it propels. And so I think that that's a worthwhile attitude to bring towards anything that we find personally challenging. You know, whether it be this conversation about race, whether it be, you know, your relationship in your church with your family, whatever it might be. Uh, yeah, it's finding empathy even when it's difficult. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, that's a real mark of, you know, maturity. And I'm absolutely not, I don't practice that all the time. You know, I'm yeah. not holding myself up as some sort of uh, example of perfection or perfection or infallibility. Yeah. Uh, but I have found that when I'm, when I'm honest with myself, that I can use my experiences, you know, as a person of color and I can, I can use those experiences to empathize with, uh, a woman who's describing, Maybe a situation I have not personally been in, but I understand what it's like to feel like you have to be on guard. I understand what it's like to be made to feel small or less than uh, without being given a chance to prove yourself on your own merits. You know, you know, it's one of the reasons that I <laughs> that I believe in the idea of redemption so much right. because if you don't then it's not just people you disagree with you're denying that redemption. You're denying it to yourself, too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, to go back to what you said, uh, I've got another quote. Um, This person said, it's not good enough to not be racist. We must be anti-racist. Basically, the the idea that, uh, that there is a vacuum that's inside of people that if it's not filled with if it's not filled with something correct it becomes filled with just the the trend of the age if i could say it that way you know what i looked up on the way over here jonathan was the actual definition of racism mm-hmm. uh in in webster's dictionary yeah um and it it i think it, i think it put words around what a lot of us would know, but it gave me a little bit of insight because maybe we should have started off the podcast by by defining what Racism is, and it says, at least by Webster's Dictionary, it could be broader than this, I'm sure, but a belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capacities, and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. Um, I thought that was, I think that, that puts it into perspective, I'd um, add to that, man, that because have you ever heard someone, have you ever heard like a, a black person say like black people can't be racist? 
Have you heard that I before? I mean, I've heard the idea. What? Okay, so that idea is based upon a broader definition of racism that I think is maybe a little bit more appropriate. And it's, in some ways, it's semantics. But everybody has biases. Everybody has prejudices. Racism, while specifically it's a prejudice, you know, based on, you know, quote-unquote racial identity or characteristics, the implementation of racism is where is where power and that prejudice meet. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. So it's, if, if, okay, so I just heard this statistic that, you know, on average, white teachers are 50% less likely to recommend black students that meet the criteria for the gifted and talented program. Okay. Uh, Now that's a result of a prejudice. But the implementation of that, because, you know, we know that going into a gifted and talented program in school, it puts you on a different trajectory education-wise, which, you know, you start that in junior high, you get through high school, AP courses, college, all this stuff, right? So that, that being less likely to, do, to, to recommend that student who's of equal merit, that's racist, you know? That's, and that's mm. where it's damaging, uh, you know, somebody in their house, you know, not liking the cut of my jib or whatever it might be, that doesn't necessarily affect me. I don't even know what that means. The cut of your jib? You never <laughs> heard that? You know, it just doesn't like your style or okay, okay. whatever. Uh, but it's when that person is, you know, hiring down at the construction yard. Right, right, right. And then I show up. This is like a functional definition. Yes. Yes. And so... uh it's, I, I think it's important to add that to it because it, uh, I think it kind of rounds out the definition and it, and it, it explains why, while lots of people, while everyone has prejudices and biases, right. uh, it's different when it comes to, to the idea of racism sometimes. I see what, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Um, So let's let's go back to. I want to talk a little bit about the the history of black hunting after emancipation. In the postbellum. Yeah. Yeah. Because there was some pretty incredible stuff that happened. Hey, since I read this book, let me. Uh, this is what I do to like my wife and you know different people as I like lecture them on what I've learned, and then they. Tell me if they understand it. So mm-hmm. you can tell me if this is what you captured from the book. Okay. Because, you know, I'm taking this whole book and trying to put it in like five minutes here. But basically, when when the emancipation came and all the African-Americans were free men, hunting became a way for them to be independent. Basically, all the economic structures in the South would have still been controlled by white power. I mean, these people didn't even – they didn't have – they didn't have credit, quote unquote. Obviously, they didn't have credit. They just started from zero. Yeah, and so all the economic power is still with their white masters. So when they were freed, they were they would have gone back and worked with. They would have had to gone and worked for the maybe even the same master. Sure, absolutely. Somewhere. So hunting basically became a way for them to gain independence, and market hunting was still in full flux in 1865. It was actually probably around. The peak, you know, for the next 40 years till mm-hmm. the turn of the century, market hunting. So, I mean, you go kill, 
you know, a bunch of ducks, you'd take them into town and sell them. You know, you go. So, so hunting became a way for African-Americans to be financially independent from their, from their former place of oppression. And I've got a quote from the book that I thought was really, really powerful. Um, this guy's name, this was, uh, let's see. As, as, as former slave Charles Ball remembered about the day he acquired an old musket for hunting. Let me stop right there and say, after the, after the war, the Confederate guns were sold for like dirt cheap. All these old crummy guns were yeah, sold yeah, yeah. for dirt cheap. And so African-Americans could afford them. I mean, they were just like, just get, you know, hundreds of thousands of muskets and what, what they were using. And so those were the weapons that they acquired for hunting. And he's, as former slave Charles Ball remembered about the day he acquired an old musket for hunting, I now began to live well and to feel myself in some measure an independent man. And so he, hunting was this place of independence for him. And for these people. And that's where the book is so fascinating because it talks about all these African-Americans and how incredibly skilled hunters they became. But the tragedy of it is that at the same time that, that they were becoming, I mean, they were just trying to gain their independence. They were, they were market hunting. It was the same time that kind of the conservation movement was beginning to boil which which made you know people started to see that market hunting wasn't the best thing for wildlife and it was going to decimate wildlife and in the south white people had always been the ones in charge of hunting and all of a sudden hunting became this place where they no longer had racial superiority or control and so that's where they began to like systemically try to push back hunting with the African Americans. But there was this long period of time, or, or at least until when game laws were enacted, where African Americans were, were fishermen and hunters. And there's all kind of terrible quotes in this book, but fascinating quotes of what great hunters there were and how at different times they were, you know, they basically there were uh, some of these white guys were, you know, trying to preserve game and kind of had this European philosophy of hunting. And then uh, African-Americans were market hunting in some situations. And so that's where this conflict came. And, uh, and that's what ultimately led to the, led to African-Americans essentially being pushed out of hunting because the people in power, first of all, it, well, number two, market hunting was, and I'm not saying they were the only ones market hunting. Lots of people were market hunting, but they were in the lot sure. of market hunters. Number two, it was an issue of labor. Mm -hmm. So basically all these white guys didn't have any workers anymore. And hunting was a way for them, for African-Americans, to be independent. And so they saw hunting, black people hunting, as a threat to their economic interests. 
Absolutely. And so there's all kind of terrible quotes in that book that are, you know, it's just, there's your Cooper's Hawk. I just saw your Cooper's Hawk mm-hmm. chasing the bird over there. We're sitting out here on you the got, front porch. You can watch him nail. He'll nail frogs and little voles and stuff all the time. He was after a little songbird over there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so it was two parts. It was these guys didn't like that they were catching and killing all the game. Number two, they didn't like the – they couldn't find labor. And uh, Well, and it was indirect. You got to remember, too, that you've got a system that's built up on the – on the alleged, you know, superiority of white people over black people. And so, so African-Americans' ability to fend for themselves was in direct contrast with that idea of superiority because that, that superiority only works if you've got a population that's dependent. Right. You know right. what I mean? Uh and man, you know, what really struck me when I was reading that book is how, I mean, you're talking about what you just described. You're talking about, you know, a, a population of people who go to the woods, who go to the wild to find a way for themselves, to feed and clothe and provide sustenance for themselves and their family. It's as American an ideal as exists. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you talk about the idea of self-determination, the idea of doing for yourself, the idea of, you know, wrestling what you can out of the world and bringing it home to you, to you and yours. I mean, that's exactly what was happening. And so it. I think that it wasn't just a, uh, yeah, I think you do did have this kind of like, you know, Southern aristocratic oligarchy and their ideas about, you know, uh, you know, what a sportsman quote unquote were, you have some of that, uh, you have the, you have this influx of, uh, economic concerns with it as well. But I also think that in large part, it was, it was just an affront yes. to the idea that this very fraught idea that so many folks had built their life around. Yeah. Here's a perfect quote. This is from the book. It says, There's little doubt that Southern sportsmen, many of them agriculture employers or landowners, believe former slaves' hunting and fishing activities were threats on several fronts. They merged their grievances over labor with calls for proper sporting behavior. So basically, those are the two things that they called them on. Was labor. We don't have labor because these guys are hunting. Mm-hmm. They don't have to work for us. And then number two, sporting behavior. Like they 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 said, you know, they're market hunters. They're pot hunters. There's a, there's a chapter in this book called Meat Hunting Son of a Ham. Yeah. That's the, that's the title of the book or the title of the chapter. And uh, I think the, the, what you just said can be reduced to two things that everyone can understand. Money and power. Yes. You know? Yeah. Uh, that the, all these systems that we're talking about, the wake of which we're continuing today, it's not. It really is based on money and power. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh And this is kind of a, this is kind of an aside, but it's important to realize. 
You know, a lot, you know, they used to call the mixing of races, you know, quote unquote, they called it miscegenation, right? There were these anti-miscegenation laws. The history of anti-miscegenation laws go back to this uh, late 1700s because you had communities, you had, you had, uh, uh, black people, enslaved and free. You had Native Americans. You had indent- white people who were in indentured servitude and poor. And they all lived together, intermarried. And that was a direct threat to the aristocracy, the ruling class. Because there's a whole lot more of the have-nots than there are the haves. There always have been. I mean, think about it. In the South, during slavery... For a big chunk of the time, there were more black people than there were white people. Mm. So to keep to keep these folks from realizing, yo, we're all in this, we're all being kept down by this small rich minority. Let's do something about that. They find ways to cause insurrection yeah. and strife and trouble within that population to keep them from realizing who's really got their uh you know, where the control really lies. And I think that you can talk about the wakes of something. That's right now. I mean, you yeah. could see that in any society all over the country. The and few that have a lot have a vested interest in keeping it that way. Yeah. And you know, what you just described is not unique to America. It is, it is unique to mankind for our history. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, we, we're talking about American slavery and, and, all this because that's where we live. But I mean, everything you just said is the stuff that has happened for generations in, in all these different places. I like this. I like this quote right here. It's a, a text. Let's see. A contributing writer under the, the name of NAT of Palestine, Texas. Um, he said, when they, and when he was saying they, he was talking about African-Americans, when they were turned loose, quote-unquote, they became at once a race of sportsmen. That's what he said. Yeah. They became a race of sportsmen. And I think that's so wild because um, since I've read this book and I've talked to a few people, um, just random people, when I get excited about something, I talk about it. People have essentially been like, wait a minute, black people don't hunt. And I, I'm even talking about my black friends that I have sent this to. Sure. They have said that. Yeah. Like they've, you know, so it's not just, you know, I just think it's, I think it's fascinating. It's in the, man, look, it's in the collective zeitgeist, you know, and I've, I've made this point many times, but it, you took a population of people that were almost entirely rural and you, within 20 years, you made them almost entirely urban. You had all these structures in place that prevented and limited them from being able to access the wild. And that's not just from, uh, you know, pricing game licenses out of, a you know, many poor rural black people's uh, ability to purchase. But also, you know, there were, for a long time, there were laws against black people owning guns or weapons of any kind. Right. Uh, the tools they would need to hunt. Right. So you do that, and then you get two, three generations away from that, and suddenly everyone believes that's 
the case. Black people just inherently don't do these things when uh, really nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, and to go back to that idea of that revival, that resurgence, yeah. uh, man, I'm telling you, when I'm in the bayous, when I'm in the woods, I feel a a a spiritual connection to these places, you know? And I'm not saying that it's necessarily because of, you know, my ancestors or whatever, but I feel a human connection to those places that ha- it has nothing. It has to do with me being a person and me interacting with those worlds. Like my wife feels that way in the desert. I feel that way in swamps and bayous, you know, uh, I'm a, I'm a terrestrial creature. You know, I don't want to be on the ocean, but there's yeah. people that feel that way in the ocean. They're pulled, they're tied to it where we, as human beings, we cannot be separated from that connection. And then you look at all, look at the host of mental health problems that come with folks not being able to make that connection. Mm-hmm. I mean, this it's part of who we are as human beings. You're supposed to be in touch and in tune with that. And and I I can personally speak to the fact that when I am, I'm a better person. I'm more calm. I'm, I can listen to people more. I can be more empathetic to people. I can be a better version of myself because I'm involved in something that again is reaffirming and kind of reigniting my humanity. I'm not in conflict with the natural world. I'm a part of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Man, as, as you're talking, I'm just flipping through my book, Jonathan, looking at things that I underlined. Uh, I'm going to just read a couple of kind of like disconnected quotes here, okay? Go for it. Um, Let's see. With experience drawn from centuries of servitude, no one knew better than former slaves on hunting and fishing. African Americans sold meat and hunting dogs, and by reputation, they were the best in the South if raised by former slaves. Dogs. Dog hunting. Um, I think that's cool. Best dogs in the South raised by former slaves. Um, Let's see. Texas slave J. Vance Lewis on liberation was dissolving his, upon liberation, was dissolving his longstanding hunting relationship with his master's son, Cage Duncan. Okay, so here's this. Here's a slave, Vance Johnson, Vance Lewis, and the his master's son, Cage Duncan, and they had a long-standing hunting relationship. Lewis recalled, there was also a very difficult problem for us to solve. We had three coon dogs which we jointly owned, and I did not see how to divide the dogs without hurting his feelings, my feelings or the dog's feelings, without relinquishing my claims, which I loathe to do. Basically, after emancipation, they had to decide who kept these dogs. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought that was a, what a crazy problem to have. What a unique like moment in history. And that that you know you would have to think if they hunted together and raised dogs together, there were times when they were out at night and there were no lights on and they couldn't see that they would have had just a human connection with one each, one another you know they were they maybe just for a split second 
you know? Yeah, you know, that's uh, that brings to mind a quote I heard just the other day, and man, it really resonated with me. And it talks about the difference in in these systems uh, in the North and in the South. And the, the quote went like this. It said, you know, speaking about African-Americans and the white power structure, it said, in the North, they didn't care how big you got as long as you didn't get too close. You know, so there's idea, you know, this idea that like, you know, in the 40s, the 20s, 30s, and 40s, I mean, you know, there were black-owned businesses, neighborhoods, you know. Like my dad grew up in a neighborhood in St. Louis called The Ville, and it was black doctors and black lawyers, and the teachers were black, and the storekeepers were black, and all of that, right? In the South, they didn't care how close you got as long as you didn't get too big. And if you Mm -hmm. think about all the violence that was done to black people in the South during that time, it was because ultimately— a supposed infraction in, you know, stepping out of turn. Uh, but what's so interesting about that, like I said, if you go to the Delta, you know, black and white people are used to being in close contact with each other. Right. You know, right. think about the wet nurses during slavery. You know, you're talking yeah, about yeah. slave, uh, the owner, the children of uh, slave owners were, were fed, you know, milk from slaves. An incredibly uh, intimate connection. Yeah. Uh, but there was still, there was this line that could not be crossed. And if there was even the perception of that intrusion, it had to be crushed with extreme viciousness to make an example. Uh, you know, so what's, I remember that quote, and I always remember thinking that, like, I mean, emancipated or not, like, if that one guy said, I'm going to keep the dogs, he's keeping the dogs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, it, it never gave resolution. Man, you, you know, there's, it's easy to, you, you would hope that somebody, I, I think throughout history there have been people that had character that was beyond their time. Oh, absolutely. You know? Sure, sure. And we don't know anything about Cage Duncan. Duncan. Maybe he was a jerk. Maybe he was just typical. But, well, he, well, okay, I'm going to. This is a perspective that I come from on that. He owned other human beings. So whether he was less brutal than someone else who did that, or whether he, you know, buddied around with one of his slaves or whatever, like he he still is is guilty of barbarity. So and the only way to exist in that system, because human beings are capable of being awful to one another, but to maintain that sort of extended, dull, plotting, day-in, day-out barbarity, uh, you know, he would have been diminished as well. His potential for reaching, or his uh, his ability to reach his potential as a human being was stunted as well yeah. as the people that he was, you know, lording over. It's a, I think that while some of the, you know, baser points of our, our ability to be human sometimes seems like it's a, a commonality, I think that, that that always, when, when we go to those lower levels, dismissing other people, in whatever way we do it, we're limiting our ability 
to realize the fullness of our humanity. I think that uh, the, the ultimate condition of humanity is supposed to be one of growth and empathy yeah. and and exploration and not necessarily easy stuff, but but those things. So, and I know that kind of seems a bit disjointed, but I do. No, I, I see what you're saying, and see that's the kind of stuff. Like I was, I was, I was looking at it from like this micro scale of like these two guys had dogs together, and. But you you saw it from this bigger thing, which I I didn't I, I would just wouldn't have thought that. But it's it's such a, I mean it's a no brainer. Well, and it's and also I, I, and that's why I like that's why I mean I like to have this conversation with you. It's an out it's an out that we give ourselves too much. I I've heard this my entire life. Well, you know they didn't know any better. They were a product of their times. Absolutely. I mean that's that's totally true. But it was it wasn't less wrong to right. murder and rape and hurt and oppress somebody 200 years ago or 1,000 years ago than it is now. Hey, I've got it. I've got it. That's a great point. Here, I heard this said the other day, and when he said it, I had a hard time not like being like, I agree with that. And I, I really want to hear what you think about this. The guy was, you know, with everybody, with some of the stuff that's going on right now where we're looking back in history and saying – Hey, that guy was actually a bad dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard it said of Abraham Lincoln, and I've heard it said of uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. And the the guy said, and maybe I'll tell you who said it. Maybe I won't. Uh, well, I'll tell you later. Um, he said he has a hard time pointing finger, like applying current mentalities to people who lived that long ago who were actually poking holes into the thing that was coming like Abraham Lincoln mm-hmm. like and I don't I don't know all the dirt on Abe Lincoln but I've heard his name come up several times um Roosevelt you know like he tipped his hat pretty heavily and by tip his hat and I don't know all the details of Roosevelt I've heard people say he was a racist and a bad guy but I also know that he gave our buddy Hoyt Collier a forty-five seventy, and respected the guy. Uh, Hoyt Collier was his uh, uh, African American guide in Mississippi, and so, in 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 Roosevelt also tipped his hat to the Native Americans more than anybody. Like I'm not going to say anybody of his time, but you get my point. Like so, now if we apply today's standards on him, ah, he's a racist. He he, you know, did this or did that or said this. So like applying today's standards to someone back then who who had some inkling, and this is the key point, Jonathan, would have some inkling of foresight and poking holes into this thing that we now say, oh, that was crazy. Do you see what, does that make sense? Yeah, man. And, you know, it's actually something I've thought about, and it's, uh, <clears throat> I'll be honest with you, I don't know that I've, I've got a succinct answer for you because it's something that I'm still thinking about. I would say this. I think it's worth thinking about. And I think that when we become dogmatic, I think that's, that's dangerous because it, it prevents you from listening. It prevents you, you know, from listening with a charitable spirit. It prevents you from being fully empathetic. Um, <clears throat> and I think that, I think you don't have to go back in time. I think that you can acknowledge, you know, someone could do, great evil and still do great good. 
And I, th- I think that's more, I, I think that, I think that as human beings, we want easy answers. And the truth is, is that human beings are not easy. Yeah. And there's not easy answers to, especially when you look at a person in the entirety of their life. So I think that I'll say personally for me, I try not to, to make a determination on someone only on what they've done in the past. Someone can do something that I really disagree with, but if there is a progression away from that thing that I think is wrong and I can see them trying to grow and to wrestle with it and struggle with it and they end up away from that, that's a person that I can continue to speak to and interact with. And even if I don't always disagree or even rather, even if I don't always agree with them, I've got, I'm I'm thinking about someone in particular in my life that is like that. It's someone I care about a lot. I disagree with them with them on some pretty, you know, kind of touchstone, uh, kind of ideas, but we've maintained the, re- the respect level with each other that we're able to empathize and, and talk with each other. And we, we each get something out of it. So yeah, man, I don't, I don't know. And I kind of don't, like I said, I don't have a succinct enough answer for me to want to, uh, die on any of these mountaintops specifically around that right now. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's man, it's complicated. And I well, think that it's worth you thinking know, I about. I think, I think w- the way to look at it too is what are we doing today that if society continues to progress, that we'll look back on and we'll be the barbarians. Oh, I think about that all the time, man. Well, and, and that's the same place that they were in. I mean, like, you know, ah, I, there's there's examples. Like, I, I listened to a podcast the other day about uh, Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. And so he's one of these guys that was like this influential founding father, big time slave owner, had like six children with... Uh, uh, Sally Hemmings. Sa- okay, you you know probably more than I do about him. But he was, so at first glance, you're like, golly, this guy was a dirt ball. But it was actually a black woman that wrote a book about this, that this was what the podcast was about. Mm-hmm. This black lady wrote a book about Jefferson. And she, I felt like she had a pretty good perspective on it because she, she said that. She, well, she wasn't the one that said what I just told you, but she was like, man, he did a whole bunch of stuff that at, for the time was way way ahead of the norm for slave owners. And again, it's like lower in the bar pretty low. I I I see that. But, you know, and she gave all these examples of like real nuanced things that he did that to her, she was like, you know, because I mean pretty much the interviewer was like, it was is he a monster for what he did? And she was like, well yeah, he was a slave owner. But he also you know, she didn't just nail him down to monster or saint. She was like, he's both. Well, man, probably most people are. I mean, I could point you specifically with Jefferson. I could, I could point you to some of his writings where he talked, you know, like uh, Monticello was like this. I mean, it, was, it wasn't just a farm. I mean, they had industrial production there and stuff. One of the things they had there was a, a small nail factory. And one of the preferred age groups of people, slaves to work in the nail factory, it was a 10-year-old boy. And you can look at his writings describing 
how he had those 10-year-old children whipped and beaten and how it upped mm-hmm. his production numbers on nails. Wow. So, uh, or, I mean, you know, think about the idea of, think about the person you like and respect the most out of anyone you know. And then think about the idea that they would own their children, which is what he did. Right. So I'm not discounting yeah, I'm, the, I'm great, the greatness and the brilliance that he was capable of. But I think you could you could point to these other things and talk about barbarity and horrificness. Yeah. And, you know, you can talk about how he loves Sally Hemings. But to me, the crux of it is, did Sally Hemings have a choice? Yeah. Could she have said, no, I don't want to bear six of your children? Yeah. No, she couldn't. And so it's... The problem is, is that, or the, not the problem, the issue is, is, I mean, that's a complicated, difficult thing to look at and to, and to rationalize and to wrestle with. And it's a lot easier to say that everyone that signed the Declaration of Independence was above reproach. And the truth is, is that none of us are, and there will never be a person who was born that will, that is beyond reproach. Uh, we're all going to be flawed. We're all going to be capable, capable, born with the capacity for, you know, great magnanimity and great evil. And, yeah. and I think in the end, it's not just what we've done, but it's how we've allowed the maturation process we go through. You know, I look, I don't want to be, <clears throat> I don't want to be judged as a 37 year old man for every sorry thing I did when I was 19 and 20 years old. You know what I mean? Right, right. Now, if I was still doing those sorry things and someone told me I was a scumbag, I think I'd have to honestly say, yeah, I am. But if I can look at those things that I'm not proud of or I'm regretful of or things I said or ideas I had or whatever from 20 years ago and say, here's the process I went through. And sometimes it was painful. And sometimes I made a jump they weren't all little stair steps. Sometimes there were jumps because uh, of a painful incident in my life or because, you know, I did something and was humiliated because of it or I was shamed because of it or, or whatever. But, you know, I, I feel like a human being's life is kind of supposed to look like, you know, the way they would want a mutual fund to look. If you look at it over the course of the whole thing, you have an upwards trajectory. Yeah. But if you zone in on year to year, you might have had a really bad year. Right, right. But if you tried to stay the course and you worked with that value system of of trying to learn more, trying to be more empathetic, trying to to put value in other people's experiences, you will end up better. And again, this is all so transferable because the the way we're talking about analyzing this information, I think it's fantastic, you know, specifically this uh, discussion we're having, you know, based around race. But man, if take every one of these ideas we're talking about and put that into how you pursue black bears this fall. You know what I mean? You'll get more out of it. It'll be a richer experience. You'll grow as a hunter. You'll grow as a human being. Take those same ideas, those same value structures, empathy, hard work, listening, and put that into work with your children. You're going to mess up. You know what I mean? But yeah. you're hoping to stay on that upwards trajectory. And, and I think you also have to do what... I think it's really important to say, I don't know when you don't know. Yeah. And just say, you know what? I don't know. I need to think about it some more. 
I, I need to have some more time with it. I need to absorb more information. You know, we, we've got to become intimately aware that we have biases in a worldview that we are unaware of mm-hmm. and, and step back. I mean, and that's kind of my position today, Jonathan. I mean, I, I really thought long and hard about about this and part of the reason I wanted to have this conversation is exactly what has happened is I wanted to see the world through through your your lens on some of this and uh so being aware that you don't know is a key factor for really success in anything I mean yeah absolutely is that no you don't you don't know you don't know the best way you don't know everything there is to know about it. And uh, I, I really like what you just said. Um, I really do. Man, I could, uh, I, could, I could go on and on with these quotes, but hey, this book is called uh, Hunting and Fishing in the New South, Black Labor and White Leisure After the Civil War. It's an academic book. So it's, yeah. when I say academic book, I mean, it's not like, a, it's not like this guy's opinion i mean certainly there's some he's drawing conclusions from evidence that he sees but it's not like just this guy's opinion on what happened literally the book is page after page after page of documentation of quotes of statistics of things that happened that really is pretty hard to refute you know i mean it's uh, a historiographical examination like i told you that started as that guy's dissertation for his doctorate right uh, but you know something too I wanted to speak to on that book real quick, Clay, is that, you know, it's, it's also interesting to me, you know, man, you know, 15 years ago, 18 years ago when I moved to Arkansas, I moved to Arkansas 18 years ago, like I never would have guessed that my life would be what it is now, you know? And that you'd have a spinnerbait tattoo on your wrist. I'd have you're fast. I love that spinnerbait tattoo. <laughs> That's a blue fox, man. Um, <laughs> you guys got to see this. Check out Jonathan's Instagram, Black Duck Revival. But uh, hold up, I, man. I, I just I just lost. <laughs> I totally derailed. I felt you. like I had a point. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh I'm no. Sorry. Okay, no. So that's what I was talking about. I also think that. It's a super interesting text, too. And what I was saying is, you know, I came down here from St. Louis with preconceived notions and a different idea of what I wanted to do with my life. And now I look at myself right now, and I'm a southern hunter. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've never, I've fished in Alaska, but I've, everything I've ever hunted, you know, and killed and harvested and eaten has been right here in, in Arkansas. And... It's cool to to read histories that are applicable to where we live and what we're doing, you know, and and because it does place you on that continuum. And that's what I was talking about when we were back in March, when we were running those coon dogs, you know, and I I was doing that after I read this book and I was, I felt like I was part of that continuum. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh that's the best aspects of what people think about when they talk about heritage. You know, it's something that can be inspiring and it's something that can be uh, validating and it, it gives you a sense of belonging and place. And it's, man, it's, it's really a powerful thing. And I think that, you know, especially 
you know, folks that we might hunt around a lot, right? Folks that have Southern accents, folks that have spent their whole life hunting here in the South and that love it and want to live here. And this is where they raise their families. And this is, you know, the little country church or whatever it might be. This lets you know more about where you're from and part of that heritage. And it, there's painful blemishes on the history of this country, on the history of the region that we live in. But there's beauty and wonder mm-hmm. and resilience mm-hmm. and redemption yeah. and, and, and love and all that stuff in it too. And yeah. I think that you're able to actually more fully appreciate those wondrous things about it when you face some of the discomfort of the ugliness of it, you yeah. know? And, uh, and yeah, man, I, I, I want to remind people of that because I get this is difficult and it's, it's off-putting. And I bet there's people that heard the first 10 minutes and tuned out to this podcast. But if you listened all the way through, I don't want folks to feel attacked. I want them to feel like, I want them to feel like this is, you know, there's, there's, I, I, I want to use a word like effervescence, like it, knowledge and understanding fills you up. It makes you like more alive. It makes you more able to experience life. Uh, and that it can't always be, it can't always be laudatory. You know what I mean? I don't so, know what that word means. You know, a lot, uh, you know, you can't be patting yourself on the back all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, praising the, someone's laurels. Yeah. I think laurels and laudatory might have the same root. Uh, but yeah, man, I don't feel reading that book. Didn't make me ashamed of the South and ashamed yeah. of where I live. It let me understand the place that I've chosen to live well, man, and raise my family better. Uh, the whole reason, you know what I mean? We, we have, we have talked about some of the ugly stuff, but man, do you know what is powerful? The one thing that we have been given as humans that have a heartbeat and that are alive on the earth as we speak is that we have the power to craft our future. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't have to be defined by the atrocities of our past in every way. I mean, that to me is the is the power of my human experience that goes back into my faith, Jonathan, is that I'm not defined by my past. I'm I'm being defined by a, a future that is intentional. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's part of what this is. I mean, two a, a white guy and a black guy sitting on a porch joined together, not from hunting, even though that's part of it, but we respect each other. I mean, I, I, I trust you. I value you. And I'm not just saying that. We get to script where this thing goes from here. I mean, just because we started off with something wrecked, and it was wrecked. I mean, slavery and all the stuff. And, and, you know, I mean, and I knew that, but after reading this book, I knew it even more. Uh, we started out with something that was wrecked. But the beauty of what we have the power to do is to script our future. And I think what's awesome, you know, the planet is like in total chaos. And I think it would be awesome if the hunting community was a point of light inside of all this. Like what if the hunters, you know, part of what we're all saying 
is we're trying to reform the idea of the American hunter. I mean, essentially saying, hey, we're the good guys that love wildlife. What if we added to that and said, hey, we're the good guys that embrace our brother from a different from a from a different strain of life, from a different culture. What if we weren't as You really missed the rhyme, brother from another mother? Oh, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. No, I, I do want to end this on a powerful note of redemption is that the way forward is scripted by the individual choices that we make and how we respond to our own sight of our own brokenness. And, you know, it's okay to say that you're broken. Uh, you know, and and it's okay to say that you don't know. It's okay to, you know, man. And, and I think being silent is being complicit. That was something that I thought a lot of this podcast was going to be about, and I'll just mention it here at the end. I mean, the way that we, that leaders, people with true courage lead, is they, they make a difference in the sphere that they have. I mean, the sphere that I have, I want to make a positive difference. I want to, I want to be a leader that exemplifies uh, personal change. First of all, the finger has to go back to me. It's not pointing at everybody else. That's human transformation starts in individual human hearts, and uh, I think we've got an opportunity inside the hunting community to be, to be a a point of light in the midst of chaos in the earth with racial tensions and all this stuff. Because, I mean, part of what, the reason I wanted to talk about that book is there's a lot of people that I think that would, that would come back into, I mean, like as the world becomes increasingly urban, urbanized and urban sprawl and civilization and technology, people are crawling and striving to find something like me and you have in the, in wild places. Mm-hmm. Uh Anyway, I mean, all we can do is is acknowledge that there is a problem. I think that's number one. And then not be silent about it. Don't let something that you could speak out about just go un, unsaid. You know? Uh and, and I'm talking to I'm talking to people like me that have heard Racist stuff, seen racist stuff. Man, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, in my latter years of my life, I've been quite vocal with people that I, I I could go into details of stories of people that I have had direct conversations with. That's like, hey, don't talk that way around me or my children. Yeah. And that takes, it. yeah, heck, makes me very uncomfortable. I, I imagine so, yeah. But- that's the kind of that's just what we gotta that's part of it it's part it's a small part but it is a part but now nah, man i think this has been a good conversation and again man i probably didn't say everything right i mean i like uh and that's where i ask people to listen from a position of charity and and just see our heart intent you know my heart inside of this is i think is 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 good and uh your heart inside of this is good. And, you know, it's easy for people to be offended at stuff. And people will be offended, and that's okay. But a sign of maturity is not being offended at every little thing that pecks on your worldview. You know what? No, man, and 
I think that's all well said. And man, something I've really been thinking about a lot, probably in the last year or two, kind of my summation would be that there is no strength without vulnerability. You know, I mean, like, like I said, man, my dad's 76 years old. You know, he raised me, you know, with kind of old school intentions, you know, like probably stuff that would not fly these days. Now, he, I mean, he's a loving man and he's proud of me and he taught me a million things. But I say that to say that, you know, I've got, you know, I've got John Wayne ideals within me too. You know what I mean? Like, I pretend that I'm not physically hurt if I am, you know, in front of my wife or whatever these trappings might be. But true strength comes from vulnerability. And, and yes, that works on these, these more existential topics. But, I mean, think about this. In a war, someone's, your buddy's laying out there in no man's land. You're going to go get them, right? The only way your hero, your heroism is dependent on you making yourself vulnerable. Now, in that sense, it's physically vulnerable. But the only way that you can be what you want to do and, and put what you want to in the world is to make yourself vulnerable. And I think that's exactly transferable to everything else. You're vulnerable when you push yourself out in the woods past your comfort level. You're vulnerable when you put yourself in a situation that you have to find a way to adapt and grow to exist in that space. And that can be within conversations, that can be within physical ordeals. Uh, but I, you know, I, to me, my ideal of a hunter is a person who is striving to be in balance with their mind and their heart and their body. And that, that necessitates being able to be vulnerable. And now I'm talking about balancing that vulnerability, but, uh, yeah, I think if we can allow ourselves, you know, to show our soft underbelly a little bit, sometimes you're going to get burned on it. You know, you really will be. And sometimes you're going to be burned to the point that it's hard to make yourself vulnerable again. Right, right. But but every wonderful thing comes from vulnerability. Yeah. Your marriage, the love you have for your children, your yeah. family, you know, whatever it is, it all stems from that place. And that, and to me, it's that idea that strength comes from allowing yourself to not be strong. And then you learn how to be. Yeah. So uh, that might be a little bit of a departure, but I, I really want to no, bring it back awesome, to, the, to, the, to the human element in all of this. And uh, well, yeah, I appreciate you, man. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, that's good, man. Super good. Well, I've only got one thing left to say. Do it. Keep the wild places wild because that's where the bears live. And Jonathan's going to kill a big black bear this fall. I'll take a little one too, Clay. <laughs> <laughs> uh... You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. 
They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.